The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Tom Sisti. Tom is the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. I now I see him every day. Hey Tom, how you doing? And you benefit from that. No, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you say so. <laughs> um and today I think we're just going to talk a little uh current event, current procurement events, run through some of the different items uh that are out there that are of interest to the listeners. Um and Let's focus first, Tom, on you know the schedules program a little bit, and there was an announcement, um, you know, yesterday, and I guess preliminarily last Friday, that um, GSA was going is going to continue, I guess, the uh, TDR pilot through the end of fiscal year twenty twenty, I believe, um, and the reason behind the continuation of the transactional data reporting pilot um, is so that GSA can actually focus on mass cons- MAS consolidation, bringing all the schedules, 24 different schedules down to a single schedule and that focus on that. And um, what's your, what was your impressions of that decision? Uh, I think it's good. I think it's a good decision because it allows them to really uh, avoid acting in haste and repenting in leisure, if you will. And the mass consolidation effort is going to be a significant push for them. It also allows them time to reflect on this kind of um, false binary decision between TDR and the price reduction clause. I don't think we've really ever ironed that out. You remember when this when the pilot started – um, there was an alternative. Oh, well, you can stick with the PRC or go to TDR. Um, the That's probably not the best analytical framework for this. The price reduction clause presents challenges to contractors that operate beyond the government space. Um, it cascades into pricing decisions in the private sector. And so understanding that dynamic relationship um, on the schedules is important to determine – whether or not you want to migrate towards transactional data reporting as an alternative. They may, that may not be the best solution, but people might, might execute that uh, only to um, avoid the price reduction clause. But that shouldn't be the driver. Right. That's a good point. It shouldn't be the driver, but in point of fact, it is, um, I think, uh, you, know, you, you know, you can just talk to companies. It's an important consideration of how they deal with their scheduled contracts. And, you know, the price reduction clause introduces a significant amount of risk in terms of Civil False Claims Act. Even if you're doing, you know, the best job you can in monitoring all that stuff, things happen sometimes. If you're a big nationwide, worldwide company, it's, it's extremely costly to comply with the price reduction clause. And to your point, and it's a point that's, it's such a great point, the, idea, the fact it's a clause that's, that creates 
a dynamic whereby as a condition of having a federal contract, you are restricted just for commercially, for commercial on a commercial right. pricing basis from competing in the private sector. It would, you know, it's kind of, I found it surprising, you know, with the current administration that that this type of, you know, regulatory overreach at this point, you know, it's been in place for going on 40, 40 years, probably 1980. Yeah. 19, mm-hmm. you know, it's been around, that's how old it, 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 it it's and long it's been around and it goes back to an age when, you know, GSA was mandatory. There weren't, you know, it wasn't the internet, right. Price, mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of issues. There wasn't competition, uh, required at this order level, which is required now, um, all kinds of different features of the program that have fundamentally changed. Yet this continues to be there as a, and, and, it, and I think it's a drag on jobs, frankly, unless you're, you know, in the oversight community or a lawyer <laughs> or an accountant, then it's, it's a job employment program in a certain sense. Um, so, you know, you know, that's a long sequela, you know, uh, Long statement, excuse me, with regard to the PRC and the uh, and the sort of downsides to it. So you could see why companies would go to TDR. Is that the best solution? I don't know. I mean, Emily Murphy has talked about moving towards electronic invoicing or something where the government, you know, has a has greater transparency or access to information that it already has. And ironic as that may sound, yeah. uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think. I think first going back to this other point, this is a drag. It's like a gravitational pull on business decision-making because um, – well, gravitational pull with a bite. Right. right? right. Because, or you crash, right? <laughs> right, exactly, right? Because you have uh, – you're trying to price out in the commercial sector and you've got to, oh, let me jump back. And really you're almost setting up a disincentive for participation in the market. I mean this is – in certain it sectors. It is. That's a great point. You it know, is a disincentive. There are sectors now where the government isn't what it was, say, 20, 25 years ago in terms of dominant player. It's a big player, certain, no question, but not a dominant player. And, and people are have to make decisions to say, well, maybe I don't want to be in that space, not only because I have this obligation to constantly check, but because if I miss something, I then get punished and punished severely. Um, so I think that's it. I, e- invoicing, I think, would help uh, because the government would understand uh, what it's getting. And then it becomes more of a, a business transaction decision. Right, you right. engage with the customer. The customer engages with the the vendor and and you work out a solution that way. Right. It's e-invoicing. Um, does make sense, especially if so. Uh, and just I want to get your thoughts just big picture wise. Sort of the trend is, you know, one of the. Your reasons, imperatives for GSA to consolidate the schedules and sort of remove these artificial stovepipes of different solicitations, different scope of work, is to reflect the commercial market where things are much more solution-based or tailored to a specific – it's a commercial practice, but it's more tailored to provide that greater flexibility. That seems to me also, you know, inconsistent with the idea of having like a – uh, you know, price reduction clause that you know sort of counts beans in a certain sense, right? You pay this price over here, you know, for this, and over here I'm you know selling it to the government for you know this price. How do they compare when it's 
much more solution-focused and requirements are more unique that people are responding to. And from an administrative standpoint, you're, on the one hand, talking about streamlining your administration because you want to be more effective, more dynamic in the marketplace, and then you're turning back to a process that's very labor-intensive, um, requires constant audit and oversight. Um, it, it's it's sort of bipolar. Right, in a certain sense, yeah. And it's, you know, you know and so in, in certain senses, TDR becomes the lesser of two, I don't want to say evils, mm-hmm. but, you know, the less, the least. Pass, path of least resistance. Right, less burdensome in a certain sense from a risk perspective in particular mm-hmm. with regard to, you know, civil false claims acts and uh, compliance with the with the clauses. So, so GSA is extending the pilot, I guess, for another year. So I think that makes it about a four-year effort. What would you like to see come out of that? I mean, there's lots of data being collected. And it is – thing that has always sort of plagued TDR is, yes, there's lots of data being collected, but it's data the government has. Right. And so how are you going to use this data? I mean, what's the value of creating these – honeypots or whatever you want to call them, you know, these sources of data that you now have to make sure are protected, right? Right, right. So that you you uh, don't offer visibility into the supply chains that you're using. Or pricing in a certain pricing sense. And things like right, that. Right. So how, you know, what what are you going to do with this data? So I, I, more clarity around that would be helpful. I think um, breaking out of this this binary um, situation where it's either PRC or TDR, maybe a, a fuller discussion and analysis of, of whether those are your two alternatives or do we, as we discussed a few minutes ago, do we have a, a, an alternative way to address the market without you know, grabbing all of this data? So in a related uh, topic, Tom, and when we come back, a related aspect of this whole, you know, you know, the pricing dynamic on the schedules program, I get your thoughts on is the idea that um, you know it's not only not just the price reduction clause, but the way GSA goes about articulating pricing on the contract. So you have yeah, and it's very difficult to um, adjust pricing. You know, it's it's a more can be a static environment. What can you know just and just thinking about cloud in particular, cloud services which change monthly even more rapidly you know uh, you know in terms of the pricing that you know the providers provide directly or through you know third party resellers that's a dynamic market where it changes all the time what can GSA do to address that we'll talk a little bit about that when we come back my guest today is Tom Sisti he is the executive vice president and general counsel for the coalition for government procurement I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers. Whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike, that's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash performance. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. 
My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And we've been talking a little bit about GSA's recent decision to uh, maintain, I guess, transactional data reporting, where you report comp- contractors have to report each and every order, the transaction, and a series of data elements back to GSA to collect that information. I think it's part of category management. And mm-hmm. maybe we'll talk category management a little bit first before we turn to, you know, some, you know, the price, uh, other pricing issues. But, you know, this thought of this push for data is the idea goes back to the idea. And you raised the question, you know, clear, greater clarity on what the data is used for. I think that's part of category management, mm-hmm. but there hasn't been a real, you know, buy smarter and that sort of thing. How, how does that work? And I think some of the, I mean, how, what do you think of that? And I'll tie to that the idea that one of the key indicators or drivers to being a, quote, best-in-class contract is data collection. And does that make sense or not? Well, I think we've, again, industry is as found it challenging to understand where 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 the value proposition is in category management because you don't see best in class measured as a performance issue you have to a great extent best in class measured uh, by process compliance so is the process are you doing or is it process based? Right? Is it right? Yeah. You know, are you doing things the way we want you to do them? Never mind whether you're getting better value, whether faster, cheaper, you know, more secure, that kind of thing. It's are are you complying? So right off the bat, you 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 ask yourself, what is the total cost of acquisition under this new construct? Well, not new, but this different construct. Sure. Category management, um, and that's the direct cost, of course. And the indirect costs because of the infrastructure you have to maintain. Are you bringing in more empl- employees to do category management, things like that? So I think that that issue hasn't gone away. It's just we're not talking about it anymore. Right. Right? And do you, do you see the data tied, the question of use of the data? I think what the government would say, well, you know, we have to get this category management is – Trying to figure out how to buy by taking a look at the data in large mm-hmm. part and just figure out how to buy better. How can we, you know, better leverage, you know, requirements or are people doing, you know, duplicative things here and there? And this is that, you know, by collecting all this information, um, we can figure that out and you'll see incremental improvements. Um, I think that's part of the theory. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's additional information in contrast to what they collect already. I mean, they get an invoice, right? right, right yes. Maybe the data collection, maybe instead of focusing on that, it ought to, the focus ought to be on understanding the data it has, analyzing that data and doing the same thing. No one's, I don't think anyone's objecting to the idea that you should know what you're buying and, right, right. and, and understand do, do a better it, job of it. Uh, right, look at the trends or anything. But it's sort of like, okay, well, now we have another uh, pot of data we're collecting. And then we, how many times do you keep doing it? Right, and I think your your the total cost of acquisition or total acquisition, whatever you want to attack, like whatever you want to call it, that's a key question and a key metric that I think the government has a hard time actually trying to figure out. You know what that what that is, right? Right. I don't think I don't think should it's, they have to figure? Is it does you know does the requirement meet the agency's needs, and was it you know a good price and in value? 
delivered. Yeah. Right? Did you know. get what you want? Did you get it on time? Did you get it at a fair and reasonable price? What did it cost you to get it? All right, that's the construct. And then, right, but didn't yeah? But don't you really know? Did it deliver what you wanted it to do? Well, that, right. right? Did you okay. get what you want? Right. Okay. And I think that you know that 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 analysis still exists to be yeah. done. Right. So you're turning. Any thoughts on best in the whole idea of best in class? And I think the concern that folks have heard, and I, is the idea that it's in a certain sense, picking winners and losers. If I'm not on a best-in-class contract, what does that mean for me? Especially for small businesses, I think, particularly who have limited B&P dollars to try to figure out, you know, what's going to be best-in-class or not. Um, uh, Have you seen that? Well, I'll tell you, that concern is exacerbated when you focus on process compliance as as a critical metric for best in class. I mean, when we think of best in class, right, the old car commercials, well, best in class in terms of performance based on objective criteria of speed or whatever. Right, right. Well, it's the same concept here. If the, if your measurement is, hey, I have um, X number of dollars uh, uh, under, uh, you know, to spend under management, okay, um, and you're defining management a certain way, um, it's not to say that there isn't management going on and that spend isn't being analyzed. It, it just says that you're forcing people into a process and you haven't really identified value yet. And so, you know, it's just, you could keep doing this, coming up with new processes and forcing people into new processes. But, you know, until you, you assess direct and indirect costs associated with acquisition, you're really not going to have a sense of success. Right. I mean, if you're looking at the output cost of an item, a pen, you know, I, I paid X for a pen. I paid X plus one for a pen under the existing system. Look at me. I won, right? Well, maybe because uh, your price reduction, what's that based on? Is it based on hiring X number of employees uh, for which I paid uh, significantly more money? Did I um, put together an administrative process at the back end that – um, essentially um, caused me to spend 10 to save five, if you right. will. Right, yeah. That's, yeah, and that's a really hard thing to figure out and measure for mm-hmm. for for the gov- for any organization, not, let alone the government, right? Sure. So um, another quick issue to touch on and, you know, the, um, is just the idea is, you know, the pricing issues around the schedules. We talked about the price reduction clause and sort of this – you know, 19th century approach to pricing, you know, when we're living in a 20, 21st century world where, and then cloud, thinking about cloud, for example, under the schedules, you know, the the prices in cloud, you know, change monthly. They can change even more rapidly than that. Um, it is almost, I don't want to call it a utility, but the pricing fluctuates. But at the same time, having a price reduction clause dynamic for as a service when it's very, you know, can be driven by, you know, the, the market and chain, prices change rapidly or could be driven by a unique requirement a particular customer has, right, you know, for as a service. Does it make sense? And it's kind of putting GSA in a box that is there a way to get out of that box? I think it's a good question. I um, From my standpoint, you have 
this model that says I'm going to peg pricing in one with one criteria, if you will. And there are many criteria that are involved in pricing cloud services. It could be security criteria, data location criteria, audit could be a, a component of that. So it makes it really difficult for people to use this reference pricing model. The utility model might work, you know, where um, you're buying it um, the way you might buy electricity with an understanding that there are a threshold or bas- baseline requirements around that that utility. I, I think that's you, – you have to really implement a program that allows you to make cloud as a service or whatever as of service that you're trying to obtain feasible to these companies that, again – are providing these services in the context of commercial markets. So not to say that they should be allowed to store data <laughs> where they want sure. and things mm-hmm. like that, but but it's got to look familiar or it's got to be intuitive to these companies that are entering the, the the marketplace. Because if it's not, then then it's you're making it that much harder for them to engage with the government customer. Right. Last question for this segment. So. Along those lines, you know, GSA was, you know, the GSA has the authority to do like an unpriced schedule. That's like right. there's no price at the contract level, uh, for uh, uh, but and the price is 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 based on competition for requirements at the order level. Um, DoD got the this authority a couple of years ago. GSA has the authority now; they can apply it to schedules. The unfortunate thing is that the language is narrowly written. It's written for services priced on an hourly basis. Would cloud or as a service be ripe for that type? So the prices would be could fluctuate consistent with the commercial market, and then at the time of a requirement, boom, you have that quick competition. You've already vetted the company; they're on the contract, but that pricing dynamic is at the point of you know execution and delivery based on requirements. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say ripe, but certainly it's ripe for analysis and it's ripe to assess because this brings us to a solution to this problem of trying to peg to something fixed in time, fixed in space, fixed around a set of requirements when you have requirements that are in flux. Right. So so it's worthy of taking a look where that right. statute should be should be expanded. Okay. Well, Tom, we're already up on the next break. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about that word intuitive, and then we'll then we'll move on to e-commerce a little bit. I know it's one of your favorite topics. Yeah. Uh, my guest today is Tom Sisti. He's the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. We live in a world where change happens in an instant. At Booz Allen, we thrive on change. It inspires us to build solutions that redefine what's possible. Our clients trust us to solve their most difficult problems. We bring together people who crave the big challenges and are passionate about solving them. Are you one of those problem solvers? Together, we can find the answers that change the world. Take your next step at boozallen.com forward slash careers. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. We've been talking. We talked G- 
geez, we've covered quite a bit already. Category management, transactional data, schedules consolidation, unpriced schedules. Um, And that all leads me to this word uh, intuitive. And you mentioned it in the last segment, which, you know, I – have to, I have to ask you about it now. When you're talking intuitive, you described intuitive to the contractors to be able to get on the contract and operate consistent with you know the way they do things. You get more efficiency, more effectiveness, more value in that that way. Intuitive for the customers and is the other side of it. What you know, just your thoughts on that word as it relates to GSA's programs and maybe perhaps even e-commerce, how that comes into it. Well, it's it's not a new concept. I mean, it really is an extension of the way modern acquisition reform has gone. It, the idea of using commercial terms, conditions, products, and services, right? They, uh, the purpose of that was not only to leverage the research and innovation expenditures of the private sector so the government could free up funds to spend on things that are government unique. They, it was also intended to be familiar to uh, to create a market that is not so obtuse, you know, right, so right. so oblique uh, to the vendors who are trying to enter it and participate and collaborate, and that theoretically should uh, give the government access to uh, innovation at a rapid pace and allow it to address um, its uh, citizens to the uh, citizen service initiatives. So I think in, that's what I we mean by intuitive it's always been there and in this context i think it means creating especially for a an industrial base or an element of the industrial base that hasn't really been decades and decades into uh the government market and may or may not have uh, fought wars with the government in the government marketplace um and to understand that it's not going to have to you know, turn everything it does on its head to participate. That's not to say the government doesn't have a right, if not an obligation, to assert its minimum needs in a, in a way that safeguards the public fisc and also uh, protects the security of the country. It's just to say that you, everything should be tested against this, these, these touchstones of um, am, am I creating an environment that just is – not intuitive is not right. understandable to the people I want to attract into the marketplace. Right. All right. Well, with that in mind, um, e-commerce now, GSA um, is is you know I guess moving towards Section eight forty six implementation. Uh, they issued their market survey consultation report back in May, the first week in May. They had a draft RFP out on the street um, this summer. You know, uh, the coalition did submit comments on the draft solicitation. And I guess what are your biggest takeaways from looking at uh, where we are now and what we've seen? I think we, we of course, want to explore whether e-commerce is a viable tool in the government's toolbox to acquire certain types of commercial items. The challenge to the government, I think, is to really um, set forth terms and conditions that are understandable. It's, I think, also to avoid having the government serve as an instrumentality 
for disruption, not only in the government marketplace, but in the private sector marketplace. And I think some of the things we read in the draft RFP, the uh, one that comes to mind is the uh, paying for product placement and search results. Um, that is, you know, that has so many di- different implications to it. A kind of pay for play, is it, there's that to it. There's a concern that it could be a kickback or tantamount to a tick, uh, kickback, even if it's not necessarily defined that as, as such by the contracting construct. The construct itself. I mean, we, uh, at one point, it's um, each, uh, the draft documents say that a, an order will be considered a contract and terms and conditions will be flowed into that order. Well, what does that mean at a macro level? What does that mean in terms of supply chain responsibility? It really has implications for the concerns we raised very, very early on about um, a, a, a security environment where literally each pers- purchase becomes a supply chain or cybersecurity decision point. Right. And uh, so, so these – Do you think – you know, just to pick up on that point, do you, you mean it seems to me – the 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 you know i guess the desire of the government to buy commercial or even like you know the the statutory framework for commercial item contracting versus the emerging you know rapidly emerging what some would say already here framework um which i guess it will continue to evolve addressing supply chain risk and cyber are those do those are in uh, intention in a certain sense are they not or or is the government have its cyber and supply chain you know requirements just like any other commercial customer and it's just they they become part of your consideration to doing business what what do you think about that well i think that intention's a good word because uh, there were assumptions that existed uh in in the foundation of of modern acquisition reform that we're confronting right now. Uh, there's a recent uh, DODIG report about the use of purchase cards for commercial item uh, purchases that wound up um, acquiring products of, of questionable um, supply chain security. And even in a compliance framework like GSA schedules contract, it's the recent article, Wall Street Journal article that identified you know, potential purchase, you know, the availability, they indicate there weren't any purchases, the availability of uh, certain Chinese-made products, surveillance cameras that will, had been the manufacturer participation in the market, in the federal market, had been, you know, uh, prohibited. Is that correct? Right. Well, and it came on the heels of the release of the interim rule for uh, that implemented Section 889A1. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the type of concern we have. And, and it... To your point, you have programs that are in place that have um, pretty strong compliance regimes around them. And even at that point, you, you according to the journal article, you have some hiccups. Right, um, people, yeah, I don't know if the article said they may have not properly um, well, identified been, where the product right. came from or who knows, right? I don't, so ima- how much worse is that if you're trying to turn to an environment – where those mechanisms aren't even in place. And I think that's that's what we're struggling with now. Um, 
because you you have availability of these technologies to adversaries or potential adversaries around the world now. And rapid access is very, very important. And it, as you said, exists in tension with this concern about the um, potential risk associated with certain technologies. Yeah, it's um, it's it, that tension that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch and work with and work mm-hmm. with all the stakeholders to find what the right approach is, what's, what makes the best sense for, you know, the business of government, um, you know, protecting the national security interests, but also maintaining the access to commercial technologies. It's mm-hmm. a, like threading the needle here. Um, and Tom, we're already up on the last break. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's executive vice president and general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Tom Sisti, someone I work with every day, executive vice president, general counsel at the Coalition for Government Procurement. Um, Tom, when we took the break, we are talking, you know, that – you know, the ten- balance slash tensions or challenge of security, supply chain risk versus commercial access to the commercial market and how mm-hmm. the government sort of is, you know, that that's evolving and that's, that's going to play out, I think, over the next few years as a big, it already is a big issue, right? But it's going to just continue to be, it's ubiquitous, right? It's everywhere mm-hmm. uh, to be a big challenge for the government and how it handles that. You know, but but just flip, and we'll continue a little bit about that uh, in a moment. But I just wanted to flip back to um, you know the e-commerce. It's related, but you know one of the things you mentioned in the last segment was you know the the, the questions in the draft RFP that GSA had issued about anti-kickback act uh, or not or about paying. Excuse me, slip mm-hmm. of the tongue there, but <laughs> about paying for placement or paying for how you are presented with regard to the search and what that means or doesn't mean. And you rightly indicated that, you know, does it raise issues about anti-kickback act or at a minimum create, you know, is a buying decision based on the best value or placement, right? You know, those kind of things go into it. But there's other aspects of the report that I found interesting. I'd get your thoughts on it. So, you know, throughout the course of this, one of the statutory requirements for 846 was a review of, the terms and conditions of commercial e-commerce portals. 846C. Yeah, in in the context of government requirements. And I I think it's fair to say we haven't really seen that from GSA. So are they getting ahead of the game here or what? Your thoughts? Well, um, if you go to the draft document, it surprised me. Um, The uh, live test demonstration questions, some of them – raised questions that you would think would have been answered in the phase two market research analysis. You know, what are your terms? How do you handle, how do you handle pricing right. or, uh, placement and things like that? So independent of the other issue. Um, and 846C2 talks about um, performing a, stand, a review of standard terms and conditions of commercial e-commerce portals in the context of government requirements. And I'm not sure we've seen that. Right. And if you haven't seen that, then how do you go ahead with an RFP 
Right, especially one like that's a five year five year pot, quote pot, proof of concept. Yeah, yeah, with um, um, yeah, well, with yeah. a with a potential estimated market based on GSA's own statement of an annual addressable market of six billion. So you're talking like a thirty potentially thirty billion dollar program here, without you know the due. You I mean where you, the due diligence? You know if it's been done. It should be shared publicly about what they looked at with regard to those terms and conditions and how they're going to address them. Um, those things matter to companies trying to figure out the channels that they want to focus on in entering the federal market. So, for example, Trade Agreements Act, that's a government unique requirement. Exactly. Um, you know, the way this is currently structured, it wouldn't apply to a potentially $30 billion program, a formal contracting program you know so how does that work or um where do we go from here that well i think at the outset you have to say you know 30 billion five years is not a pilot it's a program right all right and with that kind of money and that kind of time frame uh set out you are essentially laying out a solution choice and when you consider that only one of the three uh, market GSA models. identified different types of markets, right, right is uh, being uh, tested. Is being tested. You are essentially um, uh, pre-selecting, if you will, a solution result. And when you consider some of the challenges associated with that in that model in other contexts, I mean, the coalition has pointed this out from the standpoint of pricing, um, the the su- supply chain risk issues we discussed here. You have to wonder the feasibility of doing that. I mean, it, you are essentially talking about over the course of five years, potentially, um, three 10-year JEDI programs. And JEDI has had its own set of controversies. So to you know, we, we, we can't just pass over and say, oh, well, yeah, it's you know, five years, $6 billion a year. This is serious. And it, it's uh, surprisingly not getting a lot of focus. Um, so I, I think you have to lay out what you want vendors and agencies to comply with right. and how you want them to comply. You, I think the coalition has correctly stated for the last two years you run the risk of parallel procurement universes and it is unfolding. Right. I mean uh, just as the coalition had said. Right. So in that – and you know that the um, – so for example, the – Going back to the, the, the example of the Chinese-made products, they aren't supposed to be on GSA scheduled contracts. When they're identified, they're taken off. That's a compliance universe, um, and TAA applies. And then you, if you have a parallel universe where those things don't apply, what happens? That's where what, what kind of – you know. and if you're going to waive TAA for one formal program, you should be waiving it for others. I, I'm sure – there's government why there's government contracts across the board that would want it to be waived. We've only got a couple minutes left, Tom. So I wanted to get back on a little bit. You, you brought us back to the cyber issue a little bit there with, with a couple of your comments. Um, and, you know, I know in the context of 889, Section 889, which was just implemented or the rule came out on August 13th, um, just your thoughts there with regard to – you know, there's an interesting decision to 
apply the rule below the simplified acquisition threshold. What's that all about? Well, um, I think most people by now are familiar. This is a restriction on the use of certain um, telecom and video surveillance equipment. Uh, it is very interesting that in this interim rule, um, the FAR Council and the OFPP Administrator exercised their Title One Forty One authority um, to determine that the rule would be applicable for commercial items, including COTS, and below the simplified acquisition threshold. And the reason for that is that they found that the risk there was an unacceptable level of risk in the government buying the covered equipment and services. And that level of risk was not alleviated by the fact that there had been um, use of the same or slightly modified products or at a given dollar value. And this is a point I think the coalition has been raising with respect to the micro-purchase threshold. And coalition members have come forward and said risk is not determined by a dollar threshold. It's, it's a different kind of risk that you're dealing with respect to micro-purchase thresholds. And I, I think you're seeing this come forward in, in the interim rule. And you, you think, okay, well, the same agencies are involved here. <laughs> what is going on? Why do we have two different perspectives on this kind of risk? Right. And, and, and where we go from here on this is going to be interesting to see how it all plays out vis-a-vis, you know, you know as GSA you know, looks at its requirements for the e-commerce platform, are they informed by some of these recent you know, changes with regard to cyber and supply chain risk? How do they choose to address them? Um, you know, what do the intern, you know, the stakeholders across the, the customers, what are their expectations in that regard? Um, you know, or do the, or is it sort of in a certain stuff, the burden of the burden shifted to the buyer? You know, it should be, always be with the buyer, right? In a certain sense, but you know, one of the value adds from a government-wide contract is you've already vetted the companies, you've done the, you do, the government's done its due diligence, and the luxury there is the idea that a, a customer agencies can focus on their requirements, the specific performance requirements, the other things, the administrative matters, which matter, have been addressed, mm-hmm. right? So how GSA... Um, addresses those things is going to be interesting to watch. And also, are they informed by current events, the challenges that are coming to the fore in, in the press, and whether they need to regroup with uh, other stakeholders and policymakers in this environment to really test the question whether this mechanism that was envisioned two years ago is suitable for this environment. Right. I want to thank my guest today, Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition to Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. 
Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.